0: So i want to
1: start this panel uh, by posing a a hypothesis, which is a decade from now, all networks are going to be fiber-based, all devices are going to connect to those networks wirelessly. The idea that we have these two product markets with one set of participants competing in fixed and one set of participants competing in mobile Uh, will seem really archaic a decade from now. And the shift from where we are now to the sense that it's all going to happen in the context of the 5G era. Um, because 5G really breaks down barriers in both markets. It breaks down the barriers in the fixed market by increasing the speeds and the amount of capacity we can deliver over spectrum. And it breaks down barriers in the mobile market by making spectrum, which was once incredibly scarce and a huge barrier to entry, uh, plentiful um, and in some cases cheap. Um and with that as the as as the backdrop, I've got uh some great panelists here to talk about is exactly that convergence of two huge product markets, um blowing down of, of barriers to entry, um, a complete change in the competitive dynamics. Um I, I've got from charter uh Craig Cowden, who is effectively leading one of the biggest fixed infrastructure operators. Into the wireless market, um, and um, Alex from Starry, who is is building a business using spectrum to go after the fixed market, and then Ead from Federated, who's building the enabling technologies that could ultimately facilitate both of these companies in their pursuit of each other's markets. Um, and with that as a starting point, Craig, I, I want to start off with you, and you know, to sort of set the stage, give us a sense for where childless is ultimately going in the wireless market. How much of this market do you think you could have in a decade? How, could, how big a business could this be for you?
2: Yeah, it's hard for me to speculate on that percentage, but I will say this, I, I agree with your overall uh, assertion, this sort of 10-year assertion, maybe even faster, that, that the broadband and mobile industries will converge. I, I do believe in that uh, um, somewhat inevitability. Uh, I'll just say now, for what we're doing in wireless, we're very happy with, with the space uh, we have. We, we've got an mb and with Verizon. Uh, we're very happy with that relationship. Uh, we look at our mobility offering uh, as an attribute of our overall connectivity business. And, and I do look at connectivity very much in the same context as you do from a fixed mobile convergence standpoint. Uh, and so we look at mobility as something that enhances the value of our overall connectivity or customer relationship built on connectivity. So obviously we want to drive internet growth uh, when we uh, when we do that that uh, you know we're very happy with the model as it exists right now it's a it's a high value product we can uh you know for 90 dollars we can offer uh, both an unlimited mobility experience and 200 megabits internet service that's a great value right there we think standalone. if we do nothing uh our mobility business uh will be profitable when it reach, uh, reaches a certain level of scale that said uh more to your point about this eventual fixed mobile convergence, we certainly look at the optionality of using our deeply distributed wireline infrastructure to enhance our uh, wireless capabilities. We talked a bit more about that when we talk about small cells. Uh, you know, we can certainly talk about CBS and, and a combination of licensed or unlicensed small cells. We already do that essentially though with Wi-Fi. Right? Wi-Fi is a small cell technology, uh, you know, roughly 75 to 80 percent of our MDNO traffic uh, uh rides on our Wi-Fi infrastructure today, right now. So uh you know we feel like we're comfortable uh, uh with working a wireless solution. Uh we think there is an opportunity though to to absolutely go after um uh some of that using our wireline infrastructure that gives us some cost advantages for power and backhaul and right of way uh where we would want to Play small ourselves uh, so that we can target and, and truly drive that fixed mobile convergence and, and, and offer uh, both a lower cost product, uh, but also a superior connectivity experience.
1: So Craig, if I can just press you on that a little bit, if the, the piece of the connectivity market that you guys are in today, predominantly uh, the, the fixed broadband market, is the way, as we look at it, um, a third of the total connectivity market in your footprint. And so the market, the wireless component, is almost twice the size of the business that you're in today. The way you described it as an add-on to your existing business it sounds, in the context of the overall opportunity, a little coy. It's, uh, it seems like a, a, you know, if I think about a company like yours with a fixed-cost infrastructure, um, this huge pool of revenues that you haven't addressed historically, being able to attack that with the infrastructure that you've already caught, that you've already got, it seems like a pretty big, pretty exciting opportunity. Uh, we, uh, you know, we we launched our mobility
2: service last year, last June, and it is an MBO model. We don't have our economics in, in an MBO relationship. Uh, however, uh, and and we'll talk about it, I'm sure a little bit later on, in terms of some of the things we're doing to test. The ability, for instance, to do a dual SIM phone that could potentially take advantage of any small cell domain that we build out simultaneously with, with an existing MDNO relationship where we really do get into more of that fixed mobile convergence and, and perhaps get into, um, you know, uh, some of the cost disruption that I think you're uh, alluding to. Uh, that said, we're happy with the model we have right now. Uh, we do think standalone, it, it drives connectivity we look at. The overall space almost very much along the line of your opening assertion that it really is about connectivity uh fixed mobile connectivity meaning a combination of, of wireline connectivity and mobile connectivity In fact is today mobile services we look at our, our mobile our average uses on our mobile devices and in general this is true across the industry it's less than 10 gigabit per user per month. Our non-video internet customers, so customers that just take internet from us, they use 450 gigabits per month. Right? So it's this massive increase. Uh, and so when you talk about you know, other competitors coming in and, and perhaps going after that fixed mobile, or I'm sorry, that fixed business uh, with a mobility product, they have to solve that 450 gigabit problem. Right. Uh, Uh, And so on on the flip side, the uh, the advantage we have is that very network that enables that uh, is widely distributed wireline infrastructure that gives us the ability uh, to provide power and backhaul and right away uh, for that small cell. That said, there's a lot of issues involved there. There's the, you know, does does the uh, solution work? Does a dual SIM solution work? And we sort of check the box on that. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But there's other. Uh there's other attributes of that relationship. We have MDNO, uh, a partner with Verizon and you know we constantly work with them through for cost optimization reasons to both lower the cost and enhance our capabilities of the MDNO. That's one uh, aspect of it. Uh the overall subscriber forecast, what is the mobile data cater? All of those are attributes or variables that go into this equation about when and how we would potentially build out small cells. It is essentially a build versus by equation, right? We have an NBO leased cost today. We look at where we would potentially, uh, target opportunistically, uh, certainly not in a broadly covered way, but where we look to opportunistically build out small cell infrastructure where the, uh, build of uh, the small cell build is, is more appropriate or more cost advantageous than the continued buy or release of the MDNL. So those are things we're certainly uh, cognizant of. There's a lot of build a lot of that equation there than just thinking, hey, we've got to go build as fast as we can.
3: So Alex, to you. Um, you, you launched it for 16 in Boston. You've done Denver, New York, LA, and D.C. And now you recently raised money to go after another 21 markets. Uh, can you talk a little bit about aspirations of this market? And is that your target audience, target market for all over the US? That's part one. And then related to that is as you're going after this new market, you always have heavy competition other market. So how are you, like, you
0: know, going about doing it? Right. Um, and maybe after that I can comment on the, the convergence of 5, 5G or the convergence of fixed and mobile through 5G. I think 10 years is incredibly aggressive. But um, that, you know, look, we're looking at five markets today. We're looking to roll out in, in, in the next 21. We're looking at a portfolio of spectrum that we can use on the license side, 37, 24. That really drives our ability to grow into uh, into new markets. And um, a lot of the work uh, that we've been doing in the past year has been to try to you know, um, drive the cost of hardware down, drive the cost of deployment down, and essentially get our unit economics correct so that we can attack the larger number of, of markets. And that's, that's why we focus on those five cities and launching New York City in the last uh, four or five months. And so we're now present here. where We actually have a lot of network and subscribers and, In New York City, Um, what what drives our success is essentially the fact that we're going into most markets and we're the second or third provider. There's very little competition beyond the usually dominant uh, cable cable guy. Um, And 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 so if you come in and provide choice, a totally different package, price point, speed package, um, and lead with customer experience, you have a shot at breaking in. And that's essentially what we've been. Proving out is, is that people, there is appetite for an internet only product. We're, we're absolutely dry, riding the, the cord cutter wave. We get up on average about 85 to 90% of the, the cord cutter share wherever we go because of our, our internet only packaging. So does 5G interest you? with 5G scaling a little bit with coming in with the telcos coming? I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's, uh, it's incredible what's being claimed. Um, and I, I think that it's a lot of what actually Craig pointed to all of the technological and economic issues with trying to think about 5G to the home, to the to the residents, because in the 4G LTE world we're already struggling with 80% of our of our capacity being being offloaded, right? And so how do you how do you solve that at the same time as 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 promised, you know 50x speed increases? Uh, and totally new applications we haven't really thought about. So I think it's a, it's a fascinating challenge, and we're focusing on the high end of spectrum, really thinking about wireless fiber spectrum, essentially, um, to deal with what we're seeing as well, which is consumption and usage is just skyrocketing uh, as more IPTV goes, you know, goes, uh, goes to the web, et cetera. How much consumption are you dealing with, Alex? Is it the
1: 450 gigabytes yep. a month that current thing?
0: Yep, that's about it. 425 is our average. About 10% of our users are close to a terabyte, about 2% or over a terabyte a month. When we only see them in the 16 months we've been operating, we only see that moving month to month. And the price point that you talk about that's very differentiated as what? Well. So we're at $50 per, per month all in. Uh, no no taxes, uh, 200, 200 uh, megabits per second. So Craig, going back to um, the point that you made earlier, 80, 80%,
1: 75, 80% of your traffic is offloaded. You've got this very dense wireless network already that's using a licensed spectrum. We thought in the early days that would do two things for you. One, in the areas where you've got these um, access points improve the overall product experience for your customers, and secondly, dramatically lower your costs. Is that working the way you thought it would initially with Wi-Fi?
2: Yes, it does. Uh, uh, and just to be clear, so you know, roughly, almost 80 percent of our traffic is offloaded to Wi-Fi. Most of that is inside the residential home. Yeah. Uh, but also, and just they're probably referencing to Tyra, which is a data mobile analytics company. Uh, because we offload uh, cable, I'll say Comcast, Charter, because we offload relatively higher on that uh MB&O, Wi-Fi really has a higher key as well, quality of experience than, than used inside particularly inside the home. So we're happy with both the amount of offload, but also the quality of experience that Wi-Fi produces, particularly inside the home. I think the issue you might be referring to is our out-of-home Wi-Fi mm-hmm. access points. So we have uh, almost 600,000 total out-of-home Wi-Fi. That's a combination of strand uh, uh Wi-Fi access points and also SMB hotspots, so where we put a second access point into existing s and customer locations. Uh, we're happy with that. Uh, keep in mind for that type of service, that sort of model isn't really a mobility model, it's meant to be deployed where there is, you know, high concentrated traffic that happens to be static or nomadic. right? It's not really a mobility handoff model in terms of what we're trying to achieve there. It is, though, a hotspot 2.0 network, a point network, all of those 600,000 access points are hotspot 2.0, which does allow for uh, Uh, a higher security event. The user traffic is encrypted right from the device, uh, but also much easier uh, for the customer to onboard. They don't have, there's no, uh, you know, SSID or credential uh, creation. It's a profile that exists on the device itself, so it's a much more seamless experience. So we're happy with the quality of that network, but we also always have very realistic expectations about what we're trying to achieve with
1: out-of-home Wi-Fi. It was never meant to be a mobility layer. Certainly, that's where we would talk about CVRS. So let's talk about that. Um, how CBRS and other license, uh, license bands of spectrum could be layered into this access network that you already have and how that would operate differently from Wi-Fi both in terms of the customer experience and the, and the economics of the product for you.
2: Sure. So we, we really look at CVRS really in two major cohorts. We, we, first of all when we talk about one, we actually look at it inside the home even where we yeah. have very good Wi-Fi coverage but the reality is as you go to, uh, um, and as the industry has gone to unlimited models, uh, people turn Wi Fi off. And so one of the use cases is to literally build a FEMTO inside the home, an LTE based CBS Fento inside the home, and, and potentially we'd even integrate that into our existing Wi Fi router. So whether the customer is on our LTE Fento or on our Wi Fi, they're not hitting the end and that's So that's, that's one of the, certainly one of the cohorts. The other piece, though, is, is outdoor, uh, what we were talking about earlier. Uh, and so CBS, while it is sometimes criticized for being lower power, it's certainly higher power than Wi-Fi. Uh, Wi-Fi, uh, you know, has a total radiated power of 36 dBm or 4 watts for outdoor. Uh, CBS is 37 dBm or 50 watts, so you can get much broader coverage with CBS. And the one CBS is also lieutenant based, so it has you know higher level QoS determinism than Wi-Fi ever would. It truly is more of a mobility model, and that's how it's intended to be. And the final thing I'll say is. A large percentage of outdoor mobile traffic takes place in a relatively concentrated geographic area. So it's like an 80-20 rule. That's not the exact percentage, but it's like that concept where you have this, uh, it's not evenly distributed outdoor mobile traffic. It's very concentrated. And so we can target where we would deploy our small cell infrastructure, particularly where it maps up to our existing wireline plant, uh, to very cost-effectively uh, collect that relatively higher uh, concentration of
1: traffic uh, onto our CBRS small in a true mobility fashion
0: it's so another way on
1: cbrs you know this is where you come in you're mr cbrs so this is a great band of spectrum but it's complicated can you talk about why is a great band, why it's complicated and what you've done to make it less sure. complicated and operable
4: sure uh, actually we spent the last five years to make it uncomplicated right, right. um about one percent is used by the navy um rules about who uses it, where, when. Uh, you need to use the coordination system. But what we've done in the end of the day is we've created, we removed all the barriers to entry. So right now, in under a second, using a set of APIs with a very, very large ecosystem, you can get access to as much as 150 megahertz in mid-band. Mid-band is sweet spot for 5G. You do have to share it with other people, so you can't always expect it to be just for you. There's a slight power limit that remove maybe about 5% of use cases. But once you get past these two things, in essence you're getting free spectrum for most of the time in a very good spot with a full ecosystem, including now iPhones, um, that is ready for you where the rest of the world is deploying it for 5G. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the top of use cases suddenly come in, a lot of them I would call Wi-Fi plus, even the cable discussion we're having about you know, I'm used to not paying for all of this stuff. Give me a 4G and 5G network where I don't pay for it, right? Or if you're coming from the fixed wireless business where you really are managing, your margins, needs to be managed very carefully, that's your sweet spot is to manage your operations carefully. You do care about getting these sort of Wi-Fi like, but at the same time, you want to adopt all that R&D that was invested for 4G and 5G and be able to bring your use cases. So these are two of the areas where CBRS shines and we continue to work using software. This is all cloud-based. We continue to work to remove barriers to entry. You know, right now what we're working on is cloud enabling it, putting it in marketplaces, automating the way equipment is deployed, automating configurations, automating management, automating trouble tickets. You know, over the next two or three years, we will make this look as seamless as possible. So it really is designed for new entrants more than anybody else. And that's where the partnership that we've been working together uh, with uh, Charter, American Tower, some of the others, is to try to figure out how to take their use cases, which is a new entrant. I don't want to put in 10 billion to get started. I want to pick uh, where do I want to deploy. I want to be able to maximize my offloads. I want to use all the R&D. Anyway, that's a long story.
1: And Alex, you've uh purchased so far 24 gigahertz 39 gigahertz the appeal of those bands is obvious would you does something like cbrs or c-band play a role um in your future plans as well um,
0: in the short term uh you know we are focused on the higher uh frequency bands um for for, for the reasons we described which is that you know we're looking for the the, the, the largest pipe the, the biggest bandwidth we can looking at you know multi-gigabit links um, to, to drive uh, to drive our network. Um, CBRs could play a role ultimately as you think about sort of layering in uh, in in home from single base stations, but it's really not our focus today. Um, so talk to the challenges of getting from outside
1: the home uh, into the home in those high in those higher frequencies. Yep. Um, and the, you know I've, I saw some of the early proto- prototypes that you guys have built um, sort of uh, being sandwiched by a windowsill with a, a sure. unit on either side. Sure. Wouldn't lower,
0: lower frequency spectrum help you punch through walls? Sure. Um, I mean, like any frequency, there are properties to that frequency. And so for every gain you get, you get some deficiencies, right? So so at the millimeter wave uh, level, you're essentially getting the largest bandwidth you can. You're getting some some decent dis- distance properties, uh, but you're getting attenuation from rain, fade, and, and foliage, et cetera. Um, and so the opposite is true. When you go lower on the frequency side, and, um, and so for the distance that you're gaining and the ability to get through walls and most of construction, foliage and rain, you're losing on bandwidth, right? And so the capacity problems we were describing earlier essentially come to a head there, right? So there isn't really a kind of low-frequency, you know, high-bandwidth, you know, with the same flame powers that you get. So what we're doing uh, today is essentially focusing on point-to-multipoint network topology where we have hubs, which are lack- like... Light- you know, cellular macro cell, where we're essentially maximizing the power and distance, but we're budgeting in for a rain fade. And so if you think of a, a pure length beacon to beacon would be 10 kilometers. In most cases, we budget two kilometers distances. And so the rest of that is essentially dealing with millimeter wave properties, right? What does it take to actually maintain the throughput that you need and, and, um, and the, the the signal strength that you need? Um, and so, by doing that, we're essentially saying it's it's going to be rooftop to rooftop. We're not solving mobility problems. Our end user is not moving, right? So we know exactly where that fixed point. We can use um, new MIMO. We can use all the powers of beam steering and the maximum power to essentially create the f- the biggest bandwidth. Um, we get into the residence by essentially using existing wiring. So all, all in all, our deployments today we leverage everything from Cat three to Cat six. Uh, Wiring, we're using GHN to essentially transit our data, and so the window unit you're describing is 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 something we're continuing to work on. And essentially, that rooftop installation receiver that we're using today for you know MDUs, apartment buildings, once we can get that cost-reduced, weight-constrained at the right size uh, and footprint that will be what we use for for uh for window unit and it's not unlike what, what verizon rolled out which is if you're using a remitter wave you do have to have a receiver on the outside and then you have to deal with getting through glass right. somehow whether that's actually a wire underneath the sill or using nice some something
4: to right. get inside the home and
0: then the home part is the easy part um and so we're tackling it this way today um you know by essentially using what's what exists and focusing it initially on it on mdu specifically on apartment buildings today and so we started the business we were focused on 100 unit uh, buildings we're now down to 20 units and up um and we have in, in our sites the ability to get to, to sickle family homes Got it. and that's really just a function of cost of hardware cost of deployment and, and, and making the RI work so. and Craig.
1: The, you get around the limited amount of spectrum that's available in bands like CBRS a different way. You've got this incredibly dense architecture, as we mentioned, 600,000 um, uh, access points, which is the order of magnitudes more dense than a typical carrier. Given that kind of architecture, do you need the 100 megahertz uh, that Verizon and T-Mobile uh, that have, or the 160 megahertz that, um, that AT&T has? Uh, So even if I accept that that's where we're going to go with small cell deployment, and
2: that's a reasonable logic for that. uh, I agree with you that in general we are looking for densification of small cell as opposed to broad spectrum purchasing. We will never lead the industry uh, in obtaining spectrum and particularly licensed spectrum. We just don't need it. The advantage we have is our deeply distributed wireline infrastructure that provides power and backhaul and right away for spectral use. And so, uh, whatever spectrum we look at, uh, we certainly are interested in CBS because of its shared regime, the fact that it is unlicensed. Um, and also, uh, it should be clear, when, when uh, if, as, as the PAL options happen next June, and somebody is now a PAL license holder, if they're not using that spectrum you know, in given space and time, duty beauty of the SaaS that EID's team creates is that that spectrum is available for others to use. It, it truly is a completely usable spectrum, not just the unlicensed portion, but, but the power spectrum that is unused in any given space and time is also usable for others. And we are absolutely going to take advantage of that. Right. And so that's why you know we're very interested uh, in that unlicensed. Now maybe one more quick comment too. I've only really talked about MBO off road as our primary use case, and, and it's something we're certainly looking at. But also we're very interested in CVRS for fixed wireless for real broadband. Uh, we have done some active uh we have an active trial going on right now with, with customers using cvs we're very pleased with those results uh, and in particular in real areas you just don't repel at all there's going to be 150 megawatts almost assuredly or at least enough capacity to make that business work and so what we do there is, is we think about edging out from the edge of our, our hybrid fiber products plants so yeah. we're not doing an overlay to our hybrid fiber products but edging out uh, where the population density in the rural areas just, um, isn't high enough to justify a wireline build. Uh, we do think that there's a real opportunity, uh, using CBRS because we can do that basically with free spectrum and then also leveraging, uh, the rest of the plant that we can do so we can minimize the transport costs. We can use our field ops team that's already out there for the windshield time for actual
1: installation. So we think that's an
2: exciting business for, and, a, and a use case for CBRS as well.
3: So yeah, can you
1: talk about how you operationalize that? So sure. you're helping these these guys um, find so there's a licensed piece, non-licensed piece. Okay. Within the unlicensed piece,
4: yeah. there are open
1: channels. You're coordinating all of this in the background. Yeah. And then in addition, uh, Quake's company is using uh, this spectrum potentially in conjunction with an NVNO. Yeah.
4: Um, how does it
1: all come together technically?
4: Um, maybe instead of describing how it comes together, yeah. I'll tell you that we get the question all the time, say how much spectrum's is really left? What's this really gonna look like? We uh, went and did four studies, New York, uh, Houston, Los Angeles, one more market, Philadelphia, I think. Um, and we studied over the next 40 years, extensive simulations, every cell site, uh, all the clutter data, all the building data, simulated what every user that we know about, what they'll do. Um, PAL, GAA, everything. And I'll just give you what we think consistently, what the results are. Uh, you end up, um, over the next four years, um, if you're an operator outdoors and you're deploying densely, you'll have access to somewhere between 40 and 50 megahertz. Um, that's a combination of license unlicense license and all of this stuff. If you're indoor, and that's about 80% of the time, if you're indoor, 95% of the time, you'll have at least 100 megahertz. Megahertz. These are good numbers. Um, a big part of the reason is because there's significant amount of reuse. Because you know the power discussion we had earlier presents a lot of opportunities. Because the minute the signal dies, we're able to reuse the same channel for someone else. And the algorithms are fairly well developed. Um, and so ultimately, there is enough spectrum here to be able to begin to build a network. But clearly, we need to continue to pursue more spectrum and shared models. That's why we're working on 6GIG, which I do think will be a game changer. That's eight times the size of CBRS, and it will have 100, 160 megahertz that have both Wi-Fi 6 and unlicensed 5G, as that looks like maybe a couple of years away. We've built a prototype over the last year and a half, Um, and then there's additional band uh, right below CBRS. It's a total of about 450. The first 100 is being worked on. So over time, you have enough spectrum to start with. You can begin to change your economics, your deployment models. You begin to change your operations uh, and begin to compete. And there's a roadmap that will continue to grow. That is a very viable strategy for a lot of people. Um, You'd have to be used to being able to build networks to be very pinpoint, very targeted. You have to really be used uh, to manage your economics very carefully You'd have to be innovative around how you think of networks. You know, it's not 100% everywhere, seven nines everywhere they want. Uh, but the model is beginning to change. And um, I think that maybe uh, you know, surprising part is just the amount of enterprise adoption right now that we're seeing. And the, the interest level is, is very significant because it looks to them like Wi-Fi plus with a lot of control. So um, there is enough people that are putting into that ecosystem Uh, whether it is handset makers, device makers, cloud companies, users, um, that I can see the ecosystem continue to develop and drive more and more capabilities. That's sort of the way I see how this is. So instead of just getting into the bits and pieces, that's really realistically what this thing looks like.
3: Craig, You you talked about customer experience, you know, different networks, driving different networks. Can you talk a little bit about the protocol behind it? I mean, how are you doing it? Is it all pre Are you doing real time? Are you using AI ML to do it? That's one part of it. And in context of 5G, is any of that going to change with dual SIM phone? New 5G phones coming into play? Yeah. So let me let me talk
2: about how we're doing it now, and then how we potentially think about evolving that to to 5G. So, um, and, and in particular, I think you're asking about Indian office how do we make a dual SIM solution work? So. Uh, what we need, and, and so we've been testing CBRS for a long time. Uh, since 2017, we've been working with the ITS team to, to just first do some initial trial in CBRS in some markets in Tampa and in Charlotte just to see how CVS would work. We didn't have prototype devices though. There were some prototype devices at that time. We since had developed that. We worked with the Mobile device Ecosystem, essentially uh, anyone in that space we've worked with to develop prototype devices with really the plumbing you need is dual SIM. Uh, you also need an eSIM, or we need an eSIM to sort of control the remote management uh, of the dual SIM provisioning. Uh, and of course, we need CBRS. Then the other element that we need is something, a software client called Connection Manager. We already have that Connection Manager client on our existing mobile devices. That's how we detect an and optimize switching to Wi Fi. That's what Connection Manager does, right? It constantly detects that we don't switch to Wi Fi unless the quality of experience is going to be equal or higher than the cellular. Uh, a solution that it, would, that it would substitute for. That exact same connection manager client uh, we've now enhanced to also consider our own LT small cells. And so that's how it works What we've been doing uh, uh, end of 18 and really all through this year in New York and LA in the field. Uh, Denver, where I'm at, is kind of our test lab set up. But in New York and LA, we have uh, continued with those trials. We now have actual prototype devices from all of those mobile devices, ecosystem system players, and we measure the seamless switch our small cell domain and a macro domain hand in hand out all kinds of different use cases uh, whether video streaming audio streaming voice sms uh, mobile gaming mobile banking all kinds of just different use cases different corner cases uh, that works well they truly uh, we're very pleased with with uh the seamless switching between those two domains and that gives us the confidence that if we so chose to do this we can there's as I mentioned earlier, there's other elements involved in when we would make that decision. The chief being, when would a mobile device ecosystem uh, um, give us all the plumbing we need and not just at their flagship product level. We need a mid-tier and, low, and low-tier. Because ultimately, when we think about rolling out uh, our CBS ran infrastructure, it's not just that as the equation. It's well, how many devices can we sell to our customers to actually have the plumbing to take advantage of that CBS infrastructure. Uh, and so, maybe to answer your question, it's that Connection Manager, as well as all the plumbing I talked about, uh, that truly performs that, uh, you know, the secret sauce of that team of switching in terms of how it works. Uh, dual SIM-dual subscription, that's a chipset that's part of the device themselves. That allows for dual registration of both the small cell domain and the macro domain. Uh, and then we're also even working now with dual PDMs. We have these data sessions that are constantly nailed up. Uh, that doesn't mean data is flowing on both those sessions, but when it switches from one domain to the other, that switch happens very fast. So, so we're very comfortable with, with, with the efficacy of that model. It's just we have to
4: now think about what's the overall business case for it. Yeah, maybe if I may add to it, yeah. uh, that specific model is now slowly that cable, you know, Craig and team have pioneered, is actually being adopted by the industry. So we're seeing a lot of investment in the Android ecosystem In the iOS ecosystem to to propagate it to the next level and beyond and beyond. That's obviously a very big factor. Is to make sure that whatever underpins that seamless switching is something the industry will invent, and there are some big pockets that are being invested. So more of a a matter of time when uh, that becomes goes and propagates to lower end and all of that, which obviously feeds into a bigger business decision. But at least that the technology being created here is not a chimera it is actually where the industry is going to go and we're beginning to see others especially in the private lce and other other entrants in the business looking to say how do we utilize the same model that's very important to create an ecosystem obviously yeah, that's a really good point
2: i remember early days when we were trying to convince the mobile device ecosystem to give us all the funding needed to do what i just described uh, we had to convince them that it wasn't just the killer guys that wanted this that, that yeah. the whole private lte industry is going to want this too i, I
4: think you the point you're making is that's that's starting to, to come to fruition and i'm very I'm sensitive, only from the perspective of i was deploying wimax and we were trying to glue cdme and wimax right. and that was the achilles heel is that we couldn't get any ecosystem yeah. yeah.
1: so alex coming back to the um fixed wireless broadband business case the i think you said a minute ago that 85 percent of cord cutters Um, in your markets you end up capturing what does that mean in terms of overall penetration and talk us through the the economics we you know we all think of the service delivery model being a scale driven business how does it work what kind of penetration do you need in a building for for it to be a a good
0: investment for you so um so the first kind of primary goal that we had building this business was to to reduce the cost per, per passing right and so if you think about um uh, fiber or, or new coax plant it would be in the thousands of dollars of cost per ha- passing per home if we could cost reduce that below 20 we're now at 10 we, we, we knew we had something right and so that's really what the focus has been with our point-to-multipoint hubs covering a maximum amount of households we look for density that's basically 4,000 households per square mile and up we do very well when it's 10 15,000 which is basically all metropolitan areas that you can think of right five boroughs of of new york you know most of metropolitan um uh, cities that we're talking about and so if the cost of passing is is low enough it's below believe we're probably around eight or nine dollars today then the question is how how once you get the the building what's your cpe cost right and so how do you deploy that fast how is it low labor and how can you do it you know at, at the cost basis that you need and so uh for us it's really a single day deployment We're not to the point of of getting to self-install, although we're looking at that in the next year. And a a, a Beam site for us, a Starry Beam site, um, gets to kind of cost efficiency within 100 or so subscribers. So if you think about recovering tens of thousands of households, but the cost is so low that it really only takes a couple hundred subscribers to make that work. So then the question is inside an MDU, and then again, depending on the size, right? so we're now deploying two different kinds of hardware, for buildings that are 60 units and up or 60 units and below. And that point is really around the 5 to 10% mark. So we break even on a building
4: um,
0: at that point. In, in almost all cases, uh, we've deployed hundreds of buildings across five cities, we get to about 25% of the market. Got it. So we get within, within the first 45 days of, of deploying in a building, we get to about 10 15% of that building. So when I describe the kind of total opportunity, I'm saying that the, the pace of, of penetration is driven by the cord cutters. We think of that as roughly a third of the total market. A third of households are really use, not using cable TV. Um, and that's really what's driving it. But we end up, in most cases, with a mature deployment around 25% of the building. And what's the limiting factor on where penetration can go, so the amount of spectrum that you've purchased. That so, so capacity is really not not an issue. Obviously, that's going to be a success based problem for us to have over time, and we can start to see that um, our ability to kind of modularly add capacity to our sites, which we can do, right? Because it's 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 like a cellular, so it's a mass, it's an additional radio. You've just doubled your capacity. There's also a bunch of things that we're doing on the. On the underlying hardware to to drive more capacity, whether that's AX chips, et cetera. Um, but really, the issue for it's just it's consumer adoption, right? So right now, with an nn in- only product, we are focusing on cord cutters. It's, it's, as capacity kind of expands, we see that continue. Right. So we see a day where 40, 40, 50 percent of the market will be will be cutting the cord. Right. That that's essentially where that's going. Right. So, Craig, back to you. In context
3: of 5G, going back to 5G, how's uh, the consumer experience going to change? You, know, you, you hear, you see a lot of news about Disney Plus and things AT&T is doing. Do you see a value prop changing? Is it still anchored around like we offer a core set of capabilities on broadband, you know, customer experience end-to-end, or is it going to change with all these things coming in the market? Well, yeah, you know, specifically with 5G uh
2: you know our, our partner with verizon you know we'll have 5g capabilities with them as we think about cbs it's currently four years uh lt based uh but there are standards pathways to migrate that to more of the 5g solution we're also very interested in nru uh you know new radio unlicensed or 5g unlicensed there's no reason not to take advantage of that so i think if the question is you know how are we going to respond to 5g we're certainly embracing 5g do I think 5G is going to solve these consumption problems that wireless carriers have? I think that's a real challenge for them. Right? I truly do. I, you know, as I mentioned before the average mobile data usage is less than 10 gigabits per month. Our average, not our median, our average uh, internet-only usage is 450 gigabits per month, and that is showing no signs of slowing down as more devices are added, as more mobile streaming solutions are going to be out there. That's certainly going to increase. And so today, uh, you know, a lot of the wireless carriers, AT&T, Verizon, you know, they offload a lot of their traffic onto Wi-Fi, that is, our Wi-Fi, going back Mm -hmm. on our cable modems. If all of a sudden they're trying to displace that and and directly connect to that, they have to solve that consumption problem. It's not just saying, well, I've got one gig, you've got one gig. It's how are you going to handle the actual
1: consumption requirements? Mm -hmm. I think that's a real challenge for 5G. Alex, walk us through how you solve those consumption problems with uh, with Spectrum. So the, how are you able to deal with uh, 425 gigabytes per month of average consumption? Um, and it's such a problem for AT&T and Verizon um, to deliver that kind of capacity over Spectrum in the mobile context.
0: Yeah, so, so you go back to essentially what mobile is trying to do, which is um, to deal with a density of usage uh, that's moving, right? And that challenge is, is incre- incredibly difficult. Um, we're essentially tackling a different problem, which is, you know, you know where the house is, it's not moving unless there's an earthquake, and you essentially uh, are trying to create the biggest wireless pipe they can possibly get to a particular building based on what you uh, think the usage parameters are going to be, right? So it's starting to be very clear what we should expect at peak time. It's starting to be very clear what we should expect from an average an average user, as they continue to add devices, as you continue to see streaming, so we're focused on today multi-gigabit uh, links between our hub sites and our receivers. We see a path to 10 gigabits of of bandwidth. Um, we uh, we're seeing kind of peak usage, and we're able to do that at the rate of hundreds of buildings, thousands into the tens of thousands of users on a per-sector basis for our beam sites today. This is pre-AX, and this is, uh, uh, um, at this point, our gen-and-a-half technology. So we, we have a, a very clear path to driving this, continuing to drive the capacity, continuing to keep up with, with, with the usage. And the reality is, that, you know, to echo some of what Craig is talking about, I think, I think the, the biggest challenge is to continuing to think that, um, that you're going to bundle this, the content with, with, with the pipe. And I think the 5G uh, mobile carriers is trying to think about it in the same exact way, that, that that's going to be the best kind of acquisition technique. Hey, you're not going to need your fixed service. Let, let us just bundle the Netflix um, and the YouTube TV. And, and, and you'll be our, that'll be the single services. For all the reasons we've been talking about, that's incredibly difficult to, drive, to, to create that capacity. The way we would think about that is, is to say, hey, what are actually the verticals of usage that we can kind of build a network to be cognitive of, right? So if you think about sort of, sort of verticals like working from home, which is booming, we have about 65% of our users work from home 25 hours or more per week. Um, that's a very uplink intensive applications, right? It's mostly video calling, right? Or it's uploading data. So what can the network do to think about that usage pattern, right? Video streaming is of course, um, you know, another one and and a third that we're looking at is is gaming. So you look at the the intensity or the latency requirements of of a gaming session. And that isn't really, I mean, Google Stadia, you know, all in the past two weeks has been highlighting this, is a lot of networks are not ready for these kind of this kind of capacity requirement and these kind of latency uh, requirements and so we're thinking about not just bundling the old systems together because we have a large bandwidth pipe but thinking about how the network can be cognitive of what their end usage is that's how we're thinking about these things as i'm afraid
1: we've run out of time next year i'm going to ask you all to come back and i think we're going to have a 45 minute lot for uh, for each of you to get through the <laughs> topics but thanks very much for doing this this is uh, this is a great chat very thank great you. Thank you. Thank you.